welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I'm just recovering from the uh, MAPS 2017 Psychedelic Science Conference here myself. Uh, three action-packed days of uh, talks and an extraordinary amount of socializing, which I found uh, largely uh, entertaining and uh, inspiring. Uh, you know, the, the field of psychedelic studies has gotten so complicated and so multi-tiered that no single conference can cover all of the bases, but uh, they try pretty hard uh, at MAPS. And while I've been uh, critical of some of their conferences in the past, for um, kind of, uh, let's say, displacing or um, avoiding certain perspectives and certain kinds of voices, uh, I felt that things had opened up considerably uh, this time. And I also felt a kind of uh, renewed sense, uh, at least among a lot of the people I spoke to, of uh, just how many uh, different actors there are now are on the stage and that part of what we're doing as a quote-unquote community, to the degree we can talk about a single community, which I sort of doubt, but to the degree it's, it's a good idea to work under, uh, there were, uh, I think there's a growing sense that we, we have to find out uh, cleverer and more uh, heartfelt ways to share uh, the stage. Um, last night, I also went to a, a fascinating uh, little sort of mini conference that potted off the maps, uh, psychedelic science conference uh, over here at UCSF near where I live in San Francisco. Uh, and this uh, was a very interesting discussion because it featured um, some researchers, but also some anthropologists. And they were talking about something that I think is one of the more important and interesting topics to keep in mind as we plunge into the world of, um, you know, official uh, grade A stamped uh, clinical trials uh, and the accompanying flood of interest based on, well, cash, uh, whether this is cash to uh, fund these often incredibly expensive research projects to justify them to their institutional overlords, or the smell of cash that surrounds uh, the possibility of psychedelics becoming medicines that have wide applicability in an age of uh, lots of mental uh, illness and other kinds of problems. And while cash is its own problem, uh, one of the things that it does is it introduces a distorting effect, particularly to science. You know, we just had our uh, you know March for Science Day and. Uh, while I, uh, you know, I, I was on the I, I was on the sidelines, or you know, actually I was in the march in principle. I didn't actually go because I was at psychedelic science. But, um, uh, you know, there are there are issues with sciences and and the way that it presents itself as being an unfurnished uh, vehicle of truth. And these things become more obvious the more closely you look at how actual studies are achieved, what their concepts are, how they spread their information, um, how they organize their information. Uh, and so the, there's a certain reflexivity that I believe is very important to have, particularly with psychedelics, because it, they're so complex and so subtle and they, they seem to reflect assumptions that we bring to them. And these include not only the classic set and setting, the, the mind frame of the people, are they going into it? Are they going to have a spiritual experience? Are they going for fun? Do they think it could be transformative? Whatever, these these attitudes that we have individual as individuals make a difference in, in our experience to some degree. Um, but it's also true about the research questions we ask. 
and I was extremely happy. Uh, I saw a lot of really good talks at um, at at the psychedelic science conference, and I tried to. I mostly was looking at kind of anthropology and science studies, and looking for this kind of reflexivity. Uh, and and definitely one of my my favorite talks was by our, our guest today, uh, Matthew Baggett, who has a very interesting perspective on this. He has a a PhD in neuroscience, so he's the real deal. Um, he uh, did clinical trials uh, on both MDMA and the more psychedelic uh, relative MDA. Uh, this is, you know, official research supported by the NIH. But he's currently not doing psychedelic research. He's he's working at Genentech as a senior principal data scientist. And so he has a very interesting angle because he doesn't have an ax to grind. He's not part of a research community that's putting forward a particular model of psychedelics, but he knows his stuff. He understands research inside and out, and he understands the, a great deal about the history of psychedelics and, and of psychedelic uh, science. So I'm, I'm very happy he uh, was able to make time uh, to talk to uh, talk to us here on on Expanding Minds. So Matt, welcome to uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. It's a, that was a very generous introduction. Thank you, and I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's a good stuff. Well, first, before we get into to your uh, the, the ideas you were presenting. I, I, I'm curious just what, what your overall experience of the MAPS conference was, like just, you know, on either in terms of the content or the vibe or what you sense is happening, what you, what you learned from the conference. I thought it was a really exciting event. There's just so much activity now. There's a lot of good work being done. And if you just compare it to even five years ago, there's just an explosion of new activity and information. So I think we're in a second golden age of research. Yeah, and and I'm also curious just on, on that tip, uh, how, I mean, one of the things that I perceived before at earlier MAPS conferences is that, you know, there's this kind of visible but sort of largely unspoken divide between the research community and the people who are doing work around or supporting the research community and then the sort of, whatever, community of enthusiasts, uh, so psychotherapists, underground people, visionary artists, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's always interested me how that that connection gets uh, or the, 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 those two communities are linked together. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of reasons for researchers to keep, you know, keep their distance from the underground in all sorts of ways. Do you feel like that relationship is changing at all? Is there some sense that there is sort of a larger community that involves both sides of the equation, or do you still see the the kind of need for you know obvious political reasons, institutional reasons for researchers to kind of keep that larger world of interest at you know a, a good remove? I think you're right. There's there's a definite loosening that's happening and integration between all these different communities. And if you look back historically the group that kind of captured human psychopharmacology research in say like the 1980s and 1990s was this sort of weird mixture of behavioral pharmacologists who also were very focused on studying addiction in animals or in animal models and were very much embedded in the war on drugs. And a result of that was that the research was very, very conservative and very focused on sort of observable behaviors. In the 90s, we had this revolution of neuroscience and emotional neuroscience and then social neuroscience. And this created a separate kind of scientific uh, point of authority 
that could now be leveraged to start discussing and understanding psychoactive drugs. And so that was one big change that's been slowly happening. So if you look at someone like Roland Griffiths, he comes out of this behavioral pharmacology tradition that is inherently more conservative and even traditionally skeptical of phenomenology. But neuroscience had embraced phenomenology and really tried to understand it. And so that gave a way to kind of be more, uh, more accepting of all these really paradoxical and amazing experiences people were describing. So that was one slow thing that's been going on for a while. But the second thing is that as psychedelics went from simply being studied mechanistically to understand the brain, when we started to study them in clinical trials, then we really had to start looking to the therapists and the people who really knew how to work with the substances in order to get good results. And so that started to bring the communities closer together. And so I think right now there is a nice kind of, I don't know what, integration that's very far advanced. Yeah, one of the things that I really like to do when I'm talking to uh, researchers or stuff I like to focus in on is I'm always very interested in the, the question of setting. I mean, we can talk more about set and setting in a bit. I, I know you have some interesting ideas about that kind of it's sort of the single most long-lasting and important concept uh, surrounding psychedelics, both inside and outside of, of research, and it has quite a quite a staying power. And of course, the idea of setting is that the environment within which the experience happened makes a difference. And so I'm always interested in these clinical trials, like what kind of decisions do they make? You know, what what's the what's the what's the uh, what's the DJ list? You know, what's the mixtape they're playing? Are they going to do classical music like they do in, in, in at Johns Hopkins? Are they going to play Icaros from from the jungle? Um, how do they set it up? And if, in fact, there's a whole really interesting kind of um, history of these decisions that have been made in research environments, some things that go back. Uh, to the 60s and, and even to the 50s, there, for example, a lot of in a lot of uh, uh, settings, they'll have a rose, a single rose, and this is almost like a kind of lineage uh, that goes back to the 60s, uh, if not before. And so it's a really interesting problem because it's like suddenly these guys who are who are trained to be objective to create data that looks and smells and tastes objective have to make decisions that while they still apply to everybody in the study so they they, they it, you know it's not a that doesn't introduce the difference within the study nonetheless they have to make these kind of aesthetic even sort of spiritual decisions about what to play what to put on the wall you know and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a charming one and uh, I'm going to forget the fellow's name I'm sure you know him he, he he's a, a leading neuroscientist in Brazil who's who's worked with ayahuasca and depression and uh, he was at this conference last night and he said it had a very interesting little bit a data point on this particular question where he was saying people asked him well what kind of music do you play and he said well actually we decided to play Icaros, uh, and initially they just had them on in the background. You know, the speakers were in the room, and they would ask people, "Well, how, what about the music?" And they said, "Oh, whatever. You know, I don't know. I didn't really know. It was fine. Okay." But then they had them wear headphones. For I, he didn't explain why, but you know, maybe it was just a technical issue. But when they started wearing headphones, then people were like, "Oh, the music was amazing. It really opened things up." And so there's. There's these weird, like, technical things in the environment that, that really do make a, make a difference, and researchers have to kind of deal with this in a way that, like, most scientific training doesn't really prepare you for unless you're looking at it from the therapy side. So it's a very interesting overlap. 
Absolutely. And for my work, I've always sort of felt like we're in this middle ground that's um, there's very little guidance because the therapists have worked out things that they really think are helpful and work. And the sort of the behavioral pharmacologists who traditionally were interested in, you know, blood pressure and drug metabolism and things like that had sort of felt like you should just isolate people so that you re remove sort of extraneous variables. And there's no, there was no real middle ground guidance for somebody who wants to study a drug that has social effects, but without really kind of pushing the social effects in one direction or another. And so, so there's a lot of, um, sorry. Yeah. There's a lot of variability in, in, uh, in how the different labs have tried to address that. If you look at Columbia University where Carl Hart was doing MDMA research, they essentially isolated people for much of the time and would even do blood draws through a, a hole in the wall where they ran the, a line that was in, just in someone's vein so that they minimize social interactions. And Harriet DeWitt's lab also at, at UChicago very much minimizes social interactions except for time periods when, a per, when the researcher comes in to do a measurement. Except, of course, if she's doing a social study and social manipulations are planned. So what I ended up doing in the work that I did is we decided that we should have somebody in the room at basically all times. So much more similar to a psychotherapy type model. Um, but we tried to carefully train the people in the room so that they would hold the space, reflect the emotions, but not really lead them or kind of create a strong positive feedback loop. Yeah, it's, so it's such an interesting issue. I mean, I, I, I know one another one of these little nuggets that sticks in my mind um, is that in, there were, I believe, two principal research, uh, two principal therapists uh, or, or sitters, let's call them, at the Hopkins, one of the Hopkins studies. I think at more than one. And one of them was uh, Catherine McLean, who's no longer with the group. And one of the things they found was that the people that she sat for had a higher incidence of going through death, rebirth kind of things of, of, of really taking on the you know the big the big death meme if you will, and that's something that's also a personal interest to her. And in talking to her about it, it's not like because she was telling people like oh yeah you know this is like death, you know, and, and so it wasn't very clear exactly what the leading or the 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 sort of suggestion was how it was operating, but it seemed clear that between the two. Uh, sitters that there was a, di a difference on that kind of phenomenology because there's all these subtle cues. I mean, once you get involved with having another person in the room, you know, you can talk about explicit social interventions that you plan out or that they are, they act like actors or they introduce certain questions like a lot of social psychology does. But it, this, this realm is so subtle, uh, particularly I think with, with psychedelics more, more than MDMA that, uh, that, you know, you, who knows, these these factors that are introduced so it's like there's this kind of squirrely you know there's this squirrely uh, uh action going on and we're trying to create ways to contain it but not get rid of it because you can't really get rid of it it's a it's such a tricky thing so i mean I, i'd like to hear you more talk about the the studies you did and how you how you thought about and tried to control or tried to take advantage of this social factor, either in the MD, MDMA or I don't remember if, whether the MDA study had had therapeutic elements to it or whether it was just a kind of, a, you know, action study or, or, or what, but how you thought about this sort of social factor in your own research. 
Well, there were a couple considerations. One thing that I think is very important, although I have no real evidence to support this belief, is setting intention. And so at the beginning of each of our experimental sessions, we would essentially remind the participants and affirm that the reason we're having this experience is to try and learn things, to bring back new knowledge, not just for science, but for beings everywhere, to try and learn and hopefully at some point reduce suffering. And so I tried to create a framework where there was at some level in the back of all our minds this sense that, all right, this is, this is something where we're, we're not just experiencing, we're also trying to document. And I feel like that was a super helpful thing, although because I didn't do an exact experiment on it, I can't, I can't quantify whether that's useful or not. Um, the other thing, one other thing would be in these settings, treating people's experiences as both real and normal. And what I mean by that is we would never, if somebody's feeling anxious, like try to like sort of, oh, that's just the drug or something like that. It's like, okay, you accept what somebody's experiencing, but at the same time, contextualize it in the sense that, well, we do know that this is a common experience with this drug or that drug or this situation. And so try to reassure people both by validating what they're feeling and also by contextualizing it in the fact that most of the time these are very sort of common experiences. In oh, terms of, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Um, and well, I was gonna change topics. So let's, if you wanna dig in on that more, go ahead. Well, I, no, I'm just, I was just gonna confirm that that seems like a very uh, wise approach to it. And it opens another question that I know you talk about. And, and so you can go either direction you want, but I, I, I'm very interested in your reflections about how especially within clinical research, the idea of the, the, the more difficult aspects of these experiences is understood. It seems to me that there is a, a, a strong tension, even sometimes a contradiction, between models of therapeutic efficacy which want to, uh, in a way, sideline the potential for difficult experiences, and I'm not talking about bad trips or nightmare trips, I'm talking about just very difficult experiences through, well, we wanna design away from that. We want people to have positive experiences. We want people to feel, have mystical experiences, et cetera, et cetera, versus an approach where everything that comes up is as you just described, validated and also normalized. Because if you're going, you know, if you're going paranoid or you feel like you're, you realize that you're a robot and everything is programmed, that's not only terrifying, but it kind of feels like, oh my God, I've, you know, this is totally unique. I've, I've, I'm just off on my own here. I'm completely alone. And to have some kind of knowledge or feedback that people go through these experiences makes a huge difference. But you have to kind of accept that in a way that, in my impression, some, at least some of the hype that people have, you know, cr created around some of these studies suggest that there's some way to like tweak it so that people don't have difficult experiences, if you know what I mean. Absolutely, yes. And I, I think this is something where it's kind of more about our tendency to simplify the data and try and fit it into a really nice story than it is 
something where the, the science is not capturing the data properly. And so this is one of the things, as you know, I talked about when in my talk at the conference, where we, in, in what we're doing in science right now in psychedelic science, a big part of it is we're taking these complicated psychedelic experiences and we're trying to sort of fit them into some sort of more mainstream scientific intellectual framework. And in the case of the work at Johns Hopkins and now at some other places, we're trying to understand psychedelic experience in light of theories of mystical experience that really sort of coalesced in the 1960s. And one kind of side effect of that is that we've paid more attention to the parts of the experience that are consistent with a mystical experience. And we, and in our, in our discussions of this research, we've tended to kind of overlook a little bit the fact that many participants feel significant anxiety or fear or even paranoia during these sessions. And these are often the same people that have mystical experiences according to the measurements that the group is using. And so there seems to be this sort of paradoxical effect that was more or less, I think, kind of overlooked until the last couple of years. Well, that's such a juicy, juicy point. I mean, for me, that, that was just one of the key takeaways for me on a number of levels. Um, one is just the basic idea that the intellectual models that we're bringing to to translate these complex experiences into something that's legible to science, they all have their blind spots. And so part and, and significant blind spots, especially at this stage. And that part of the work and part of what I so admire about your particular work, because you have extra authority as a neuroscientist and as a researcher, is that, that there has to be a degree of reflexivity more than we've seen uh, in terms of the models and and those blind spots, there ha you know, which as a humanities person, it's obvious. You know, I'm, I study the history of psych of ideas, and so I know that psychological ideas change over time, and they change for historical reasons. That schizophrenia in the 1960s is not the same as what it was in the 30s, and what psychosis is has shifted, and Asperger's, and all these things are also historical ideas that move through time. They change. There's political reasons they take form. There's political reasons that they fall apart. And that that reflexivity, that's, that awareness of the kind of looping nature of our knowledge has to be part of this research in, a, in as explicit a way as possible. And part of my frustration with, with psychedelic research up to this point, including very much the Johns Hopkins work, was the lack of this. I mean, I remember you know, I, so I have a PhD in religious studies. I One of my main topics that I write about is is the, the, the question of religious experience or mystical experience, not the same thing, but they overlap within the field. And it's an enormous literature, you know, with people on one side saying there's no such thing. It's just an imposition of our own assumptions and models. Religion as such doesn't exist. And on the other end, people working really hard to still maintain a place where we can say, ah, that's it, and sort of de develop some language around it. And I, when I met Roland Griffiths, finally, you know, the, the, the head of the, the Hopkins study where they, they studied the mystical experiences that were afforded by uh, psilocybin, I started to talk about this literature and he just glazed over. He didn't really understand what I was talking about because they took a model from the 1960s. It's like the field is, has not gotten stuck in the 1960s. And they go like, look, there's serious problems 
even if you're pro mystical experience like I am, I think it's a valid discourse, but there's serious problems with the models that they're basing all their research on. And so it's a, it's a, you know, it's a kind of weird frustration for me because I'm like, great. People are proving that these things can be mystically important for people. And that's wonderful. But the mechanisms are, are from my perspective, really crude. Um, and they also distort the way that you talk about, particularly in terms of the expectations of how to deal with paranoia, with the nightmare, with the with the demons, with the fear, all that stuff that comes along that I think is incredibly important and wonderful parts of psychedelics, frankly. But, you know, in the, in these models, that becomes something to avoid because we want to get we want to get the percentages to rise on the mystical experience. So I think they're about 60% with the Hopkins stuff. You know, they they want it to be 80 or 90. You know, so how do we get there? And, and it might be that, like you say, you have to go through, for some people, you have to go through the, the nightmare to get to the mystical experience, which totally changes the idea of what, what you're trying to kind of create in some ways. Absolutely. And so it, I think one of the hardest challenges in this kind of research is really figuring out what the kind of causal chain is, where we give somebody a drug, they may have this experience, they may have some long-term sense of meaning change, they might have increased openness to new experiences, but to actually sort of figure out which of the things that went on in the acute period of drug effects was really instrumental in causing them to have a change in personality and feeling more open to the world and new experiences or having you know, lasting sense of meaning. It, we really, it's very hard for science to say, oh, it's just this one aspect of the experience that's important, not that other aspect. And this is the place where our intellectual frameworks, the sort of assumptions we're bringing into the research really has a lot of influence where we tend to focus on one versus another. But scientifically and statistically, these are really hard arguments to make and we really don't know which things in the experience are important. And so what's happened in the last couple of years is that science has started to take more seriously the idea that it's not, and so by science, I mean, you know, certain subsets of clinical re psychedelic research have started to take more seriously the idea that it may not be just the mystical experience that's important for long-term good outcomes. It may be that having some sort of challenging experience and then resolving it in a certain way is the thing that's useful. But again, it's very hard to know that actual causality here. We do a bunch of measurements and then we sort of say, oh, it looks like these ones are more correlated with these ones, so maybe they're causing it. But that assumes that all the different measurements we're making are equally sensitive to the things we're trying to measure. And, so and often we're doing correlations across people. And so you have this mixed effect of people who had smaller effects from a drug, like say if you have for some reason you metabolize psilocin faster and you end up with lower blood levels of it. And then you have less intense experiences. And so that'll create these correlations across essentially all drug effects. And then the drug effects that are measured with less noise will be more correlated. And the ones that are measured with more noise because they're just bad measurements and there's a lot of variability in the numbers you get, those ones won't be correlated and, and you'll think you'll see causality when you don't. Uh, that sounds incredibly, uh, incredibly complicated. I mean, you are, you know, you're a data scientist, so you deal with these issues all the time of, of correlation of different ways of extracting predictive models from data sets and, and all of these kinds of things. And you're, 
you you have a uh, you have a very self-critical head so you're not just going to buy the hype which some data scientists so they create these in, enormous claims that seem very suspicious to me based on the problems that you're talking about do you think these problems are in some general sense solvable at least for 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 psychedelics in terms of do you think there 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 are ways to to uh you know refine uh, to an, a, to a greater a, gr a great enough degree that we actually get very robust new information, or do you think it's kind of almost inherently tricky? It's almost like that it's so complex or subtle that it, it becomes very difficult once you're crossing these quantitative measures and these qualitative experiences. I, I think it's something we can solve uh, with good, careful experiments. I think right now in the field of science in general, it's sort of the, the incentives are aligned against these sorts of experiments. How and, so? Well, well, for one thing, there's a funding issue where money is tight and you want to get the most out of the, the smallest amount of money. And so you end up running studies with fewer people in them and as a result of that, it kind of limits your ability to do good analyses and find really robust connections between your measures. Another thing is that by human nature, we tend to focus on trying to strengthen the theory we like rather than weaken it. And if you have less money and you have to sort of focus your resources on certain measures, you focus on the ones that you think are the most interesting. And we tend to like be a little lax in sort of including control measures that would let us know that the thing we're measuring is um, really is that we're really measuring the thing we want to measure. Um, so this might sound a little abstract, but um, like, for example, if you're look, if you have a study and you're trying to measure how people are able to process facial expressions differently. And so we see often that people on in a lot of conditions get worse at recognizing fear. And so there's a question, is this really a specific effect where we're somehow less sensitive to negative emotions, or is it possible that fearful faces are just somehow different spatially where more of the information is in the eyes or they're harder to recognize? Um, or maybe there's a pattern in guessing where if you're feeling blissful and happy, you tend to guess positive emotions. And so all these sorts of factors could be things that would be driving effects that you'd have to sort of carefully go through and look at. But in today's world in which you want to have a paper that tells a clean story, and you want to do it with essentially as few resources as possible. These kind of things sort of fall by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, that was very interesting about this 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 conference last night, particularly the the two neuroscientists from from Brazil. Is the way they were speaking, it was clear that they were very happy to be able to share problems with data analysis, with collection, with de decisions they had to make about experimental design that weren't the kinds of things they would necessarily talk about in a paper. And they were very explicit about like this papers, you have, you don't have enough room, you have to make it clean, you have, you know, so there's such a, it's, it's a very interesting place, especially from a humanities perspective, where it's precisely these complexities that people love to plunge into and make careers from, you know, it's not any less self-motivated in that sense. Uh, but it does have such a different kind of register. And it just seems that psychedelics in particular, because it's so these non-ordinary states are so, you know, peculiar from our from our ordinary perspective that 
these sorts of problems become in a way kind of magnified. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I can, I can, you know, I, it seems uh, really important to figure out how to, how to keep, again, keep those loops in mind. But so we, we, we've talked to some up here about, about mysticism and some of its blind spots, particularly the way that it has at least historically kind of uh, uh, put the more difficult experiences, anxiety, paranoia, fear, a little bit to the side because they of a fixation on a certain idea of bliss or oneness or whatever their model of mysticism is. But of course, mysticism is only one of the main intellectual frameworks that people are are using these days. And another one that you talked about is the systems neuroscience model, especially with this, the emphasis on the default mode network. And this is a big buzzword in the cognitive science world and in uh, some psychedelic studies. So it would be great if you could explain a little bit about what this model is or what the default mode network is, and then also reflect on some of its blindnesses as well, which I know, I know you have some things to say about. Sure. Yeah. And so I'd like to start this by saying that um, the, the my thinking on this is that we're all doing as good a job as we can. And psychedelic science up to this point has greatly benefited from the insights that we get from our own experiences or the experiences of people we know or things that have been written down. And so if you go in to study mysticism, you're pretty certain that that psilocybin can cause something like a mystical experience. There's There are religions that are based on psychedelics helping you to have a, an experience of that sort. And similarly with MDMA and PTSD, because therapists had felt like they had used it successfully for chronic anxiety conditions that were seemingly triggered by trauma, we were pretty certain that MDMA would probably helpful, be helpful for PTSD. But once we start to get into brain mechanisms, it's sort of a more perilous area because fewer of our, our sort of um, intuitions are necessarily going to be that useful. And so what you end up doing is you take kind of frameworks from science and you see how you can merge your sort of understanding of how the brain works, this framework from science, with your understanding of what it feels like to be on a psychedelic. And this ends up being a little riskier. And so the default mode network is this... Um, this idea that if we if we measure brain activity with something like fMRI, what we do is what we can do with the, our uh, our data set is we can try and kind of split it up and say let's just assume that there's regions that there's networks in the brain that that are independent from each other and so like if we can if we like take a one area of the brain like one little part of it and we try and find correlations in activity like let's see if we can carve out separate uh, networks that that where these areas of the brain tend to increase in activity and decrease in activity at the same time. So the default mode network is one of these, and it's one of the more popular ones to study. And it seems like it's more active when you don't tell your participants to do anything. And this is kind of how this whole area of research was started, where in early fMRI research, you would put someone in a magnet and you'd say, hey, do mental mathematics and we'll measure you and then do nothing and we'll measure you. And then we can subtract the two data sets and we can find the parts of the brain that are involved in mental mathematics. And so this is how the field worked at first. And they started to notice that there were these areas of the brain that 
that went down when you asked people to do mental mathematics and they went up when you asked them to do nothing. And so this is the default mode network is sort of the, the child of this re realization. And so it seems to be essentially like the part of the brain that's involved when you're just thinking about your ordinary life. Maybe you're thinking about what you did or what you're going to do. And this is the area that supports that kind of processing. So in a way, generally, it wouldn't be really surprising if a psychedelic that causes you to have lots of unusual experiences might make this part of the brain less active. So in some really simple sense, this is almost like an obvious hypothesis along the lines of mystical experience being uh, made more likely by psilocybin. But at the same time, there are interesting and non-trivial things that are being found out as well, because the specific fact that within the default mode network, the little areas that we can measure with fMRI are less correlated or, and those areas become more correlated with things outside the default mode network. That's, uh, that's non-trivial, that's new, and that's some useful information. But a thing that is a potential sort of slippage between uh, the sort of standard way that science talks about the default mode network and the way we think about it in the psychedelics field is the term disintegration. So when we hear disintegration, we might think of some sort of psychological process, but it could also mean essentially the opposite of integration, which would be the opposite of the idea that, which would, integration would be this idea that within some area that we've carved out in the brain, all those parts of the brain can have causal effects on each other so that this area is integrated. And so essentially what's happening is in these papers, you're doing something very much like seeing a decrease in correlation and we're calling this disintegration, which is fine. Um, but in, the, in neuroscience in general, if you saw some sort of decrease in default mode network, you wouldn't necessarily think of it as being some sort of disintegrative process. And so there's like a little bit of risk here that we're kind of mapping our psychedelic experiential ideas onto this thing. And it's not 100% certain that the thing we're measuring really is related to any sort of ego disintegration or ego loss. Oh, it's, yeah, that's, that's particularly linked is that people look at this, the, the basic idea is that since the default mode network seems to be deactivated and under psychedelics, that this is associated with this psychological account that people have of, of ego dissolution or ego loss, whereas it might be something not so directly tied to this, to this sort of core, you know, another one of these core ideas that's been through psychedelic research, the whole thing, that, that it's possible to have this kind of ego dissolution um, effect. And that might just be just too simple. I mean, what one of the things that as someone who's fascinated by but very skeptical of a lot of cognitive science is that one of the things that the, 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 the discourse around default mode network indicates to me and that it's important for people who are not scientists to recognize, and I think it's very blurry the way it's usually presented, is that there's a big difference between neuroscientific data and cognitive science, scientific models that once you, you know, if you're actually looking at these correlations and you're saying, okay, yeah, these regions of the brain light up an fMRI, that's neuroscientific data. I mean, it's still constructed, but it's, it's close to empirical 
signaling from the brain. But when you start to talk about on another level, like, well, what network are we going on here? There's a relationship. But as soon as you start using more broader cognitive science ideas, ideas of templates, uh, of, you know, different kinds of uh, predictive modeling, et cetera, et cetera, we can study some of this stuff. But some of it is also people who come up with, you know, language to try to explain sort of psychological uh, cognitive functions that aren't the same thing as neuroscientific data. Obviously, we have to do this. And it's an incredible complicated problem but but it's uh it's also introduces more fuzziness if you will in in the conversation that's not always clear from the way people present the data exactly i, I think you actually said it cleaner than i said it that there, there is this um it, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier that we can make a bunch of these measurements but then when we try and say well this thing is causing that thing it, it's a lot more difficult and it's even more difficult in the case of functional imaging be like fMRI because it's never really clear if we're measuring the right thing and certainly you would expect that some sort of measure of connectivity should be closely associated with changes in consciousness but fMRI is it's sort of a slow measure because it's you're taking something closely related to neural activity um, but then measuring it in a way where it's been averaged over across this change in, in kind of like blood flow. And so you've got this blurred measure that's kind of sensitive to sort of slow changes in the brain, while we know that consciousness happens at sort of the tens and hundreds of milliseconds range. And we're measuring it, we're measuring with fMRI the, the whole brain, and it gives you so many opportunities to essentially find false correlations that are unrelated to the phenomenon you care about. And so it's a very difficult problem. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, well, I, I could, I could, have, we could talk more about, I'm, I'm sort of interested in the, in the, the whole issue of oscillations and correlated oscillations in the brain, but I also, we only have about 15 minutes left. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about the third intellectual framework that you were lecturing about, but you didn't get that much time to present on, which is the particularly the idea of MDMA as an intact Gen, um, and some of the assumptions that have been driving the MDMA studies, which are so robust, there's been so many studies comparatively. Um, and since you worked on MDMA, um, I would love to hear a little bit about, again, what's the what has been the dominant intellectual framework and what are what are its blind spots uh, in terms of the data, in terms of acknowledging the complexity of the phenomenon and, and building more robust research and therapeutic models based on the, uh, these ideas? Sure, yeah. So th this is an area where I think it's it's not even clear to me that the kind of the mistranslations or slippages between frameworks is something that the whole field has done. In some ways, it's the kind of thing where it's uh, more was my personal learnings. Um, and also, not so much mistranslations, but lack of uh, appropriate uh, framework to start with. And so, you know, as you know, MDA was a drug that was considered to have some sort of unusual emotional effects, and it started becoming popular. So this is MDA, not MDMA. And it was becoming popular in the 60s. It was made illegal around 1970. And right around 1970, we started to see MDMA 
appear on the street, essentially. And even more so than MDA, MDMA had this reputation for being sort of more easily controllable and more emotional and warmer than classical psychedelics. And so it starts to get used in therapy and the therapists are super duper quiet about it. And they're kind of just sort of spreading it by saying like, hey, you need to try this. This is really interesting and important. And not there's not much articulation of what its effects are until the mid 80s around 1984 when it starts to become so popular that it risks being made illegal and it's it becomes a street drug that the media is covering and so these therapists who had previously been very quiet start to articulate what they think is the unusual effect of the drug and so it's this fascinating time period because they're 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 coming out and starting to try and connect the something that they had sort of done I think intuitively with the contemporary psychoanalytical theories and things like that and the effects that they most often articulate is something relating to um, being less defensive or having an anesthesia of neurotic self or having increased capacity for introspection or being free from anxiety. And if you look at what they're saying really carefully, one of the things is that they don't necessarily claim cleanly that anxiety is gone, more that there's some sort of freedom from it, or you have less of the feeling in the pit of your stomach that accompanies the anxiety, or you feel less upset by the anxiety. And so it's, it's hard for us to say something that complicated. And so it, often in our sort of simplified version of that, we talk about MDMA as giving you freedom from fear or making you less anxious. But it's very clear at this point that it's not really a classical anxiolytic. It's not just decreasing anxiety. It's doing something slightly differently. But the problem is, is that in classical psychopharmacology, we don't really have any kind of class for um, decreased defensiveness or a, a drug that would make you less neurotic. Uh, I see. That's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't even thought about that, but it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, in a way, part of the the, the reason that MDMA is is deep in a way that benzodiazepines are not is because is is is, 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 is in some ways is because some of that anxiety or whatever is still there it's just that you have a reframed way of thinking about it or being about it or maybe even just ignoring it uh but if you but it's not that it's just been knocked out of the out of the game i mean i think that there there's also some evidence if i recall from some studies and i think this is true anecdotally um that uh, low doses of, of MDMA in particular, you actually can notice some, some anxiety associated with it. So it's not like it's just some kind of knockout, uh, knockout drug. And I can, it makes a lot of sense that within the kind of psychopharmaceutical or pharmacological models that uh, that difference makes a, 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 huge, uh, a huge amount of difference in terms of trying to understand how these things work and how just indeed how complex our emotions are. And because it sounds like in a way what you want is a model that enables you to describe the ability to be in relationship with a, a, a negative emotion that's, that's conscious in some sense, but not be holding it or responding to it or succumbing to some of its, you know, entailments like a, the pit of the stomach fear that you would normally do. So it almost kind of decomposes 
these uh, cl feeling clusters, uh, but not by getting rid of the things. Does that make sense? Exactly, yes. And so you're, you're absolutely right that in studies that we've done, if you give around 110 milligrams of MDMA, you do get people pretty consistently saying that they feel a little more anxious and a little less relaxed. And it took a couple of studies before I figured out a good way to measure social anxiety, which goes down, and something essentially related to defensiveness. So the problem I had with trying to measure defensiveness um, was that it's harder to measure decreases in things than increases in things for technical reasons. And it seemed to me that ultimately MDMA was increasing something rather than decreasing something, just as my essentially intellectual bias on here. And so I eventually settled on this, this uh, scale to measure authenticity, this sort of feeling that you can be yourself without any real sort of restriction. And this turns out to be a pretty good measure of the MDMA effect, where people do feel like they can be themselves without fear. And sort of that, along with some kind of altered social anxiety maybe is kind of how I think about MDMA these days. And in particularly the social anxiety, I think about it in terms, and this is, you know, again, this is me mapping phenomenology that I see in people onto a scientific framework. But there's this idea in science that, that the stress response that's been most well-known, this fight or flight response, is something that came about because they were mostly studying male animals. And that's the typical response in male animals. But if you go back and you start to study female animals and how they respond to stress, a more common pattern is what's called tend and befriend, where rather than preparing to fight and pulling back, instead you get closer to other people and for mutual protection and things like that. And so one way that I, I like to talk about MDMA is that it's possible that the oxytocin hormone that gets released is causing people to have essentially a more feminized, more pro-social response to anxiety. Wow, that's fascinating. That, and it, it's amazing when you just, to, I'm, I'm really appreciate this detail because I think, you know, if I might just read this on the page, it, I might not, it registers much, but when you describe these issues and, and needing to come up with a positive factor like authenticity that's rising or different models of how people relate to anxiety, you really open up like a, a, a much more complex sense of what's going on rather than the kind of knockout drug, you know, part, which is just, the, that's the story we've been sold about pills for 150 years. It just kind of does this one thing. Oh, it makes you not anxious. That's why you feel happy and connected with people. And you're like, well, no, actually there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it. And there is anxiety in the picture. And even part of the joy of it is recognizing that despite the presence of your own familiar friend anxiety, you nonetheless feel connected and held and enjoying being with people. At least I can, I can speak that for an often anxious person. So it's, it's almost, you know, it's much more rich in a way than just thinking of it in terms of turning down um, some, uh, some particular, you know, knob. Absolutely. And so in a way, what we're talking about is that these different uh, scientific constructs, these frameworks give us a richer diversity for understanding our experience. And I think that that's really 
the promise of what's going on right now in science is that as it opens up and we use more and more of these models and different approaches, we just get a more rich, robust view and understanding of things. You know, it always comes back to this idea that models are false, but some models are useful. And the more data we have, the better models we're going to be able to make, and we're going to have a richer understanding of these experiences and hopefully make them more controllable and more useful and safer. Now, here's a general question. I'm, I'm, it might be too complex to answer, but, but so listening to you, I get a very strong sense again of your, your recognition that, that models are in some sense false and that models have blind spots, that researchers have, have confirmation bias like everybody else. And you've kind of made allusions to that in your own, describing your own experiments here and your own th thinking about these experiments. So there is this kind of way of being very self-aware of these, of, uh, of biases and how they in impact research and how they create models that have blind spots that are important. You seem very aware of this. Is that common, increasingly common, still not so common because there's so many other pressures, financial, institutional, career, uh, in, a lack of intellectual uh, background of a certain sort that drives researchers to not do this um, as so much or, or any more than they have to. And, and so how, do, how is, you know, how, I'd just love to get a sense kind of from the inside, so to speak, of how widespread that kind of self-critical thinking is among people who are designing these and, and articulating uh, these kinds of researchers, whether it's inside psychedelics or even more broadly. It's just such a fascinating issue within science these days that I'd love to hear your response. That's a big question. Yeah, um, yeah. and we have like three minutes. <laughs> I, I think overall, this kind of um, thinking is improving and becoming more common simply because we have more events like the conference we were just at where there's all sorts of different disciplines being represented. And so it's easier to be exposed to the thinking of these things. Um, but that being said, it requires you as an individual to sort of identify with something outside your professional uh, main sort of intellectual tradition. And so that you need to have a certain amount of inquisitiveness and a certain desire to do better research. And so um, I think my background as someone trained in philosophy and who wanted to um, really take the phenomenology seriously and you know, makes me a little more open to it. But I think in general, yes, the field is getting better at this because there's more of us doing it and we know each other and see each other's work and can learn from it. That That's really great. I mean, that was, again, when I, I, I wrote a cranky article about maps, uh, you know, a number of years ago. And, and the main thing I said was that they have multidisciplinary in the name, but it doesn't look very multidisciplinary to me. It looks like a, a kind of uh, very understandable, but um, problematic, hype machine and uh i really had that that sense i felt that that had changed and what i saw in psychedelic science among researchers as well as others but particularly among researchers is there's just more awareness that that, that psychedelics probably probably everything but definitely psychedelics certainly other psychopharm you know uh psychoactive drugs are just necessarily multi-dimensional multidisciplinary things that like you cannot get at them through a single mind frame or a, a single study or a single kind of model, 
Um, so I was very heartened by that kind of uh, uh, sense of, of, of opening and, and your your reflections were very much part of that. And I, I, I certainly look forward to seeing how your ideas and criticisms, uh, you know, get incorporated into the ongoing research projects. So thank you for that. And I think we probably have to uh, to wrap up here. I wanted to ask you if you have any plans of going back into psychedelic research or whether you're, you're kind of done with it. I don't know. This may be a comp too personal question, but I'm can't I, I we could just you could give me a yes or no answer. Um, well, sort of my ideal retirement plan would be to involve the be involved in some sort of psychedelic research and therapy center. That would probably be yeah. many, many years from now. Um, and in the interim, I'm happy to give people advice and really uh, trying to do whatever I can to uh, keep people within the field productive and you know, keep the field moving. Well, wonderful. I think that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful place uh, to be. And, and hopefully by the time you can uh, set up your center, things will be much more robust and available. And I think it will be. I, I think that's one of the, the real positive things we can think about as we look ahead to a very difficult future. So, uh, Matt Baggett, thanks so much for joining us on, on Expanding Mind. My pleasure. That was Matthew Baggett, uh, data scientist at Genentech and uh, former psychedelic researcher with a lot of good ideas. So until next week, keep your minds open.